Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Beyond Politics. I am Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We are broadcast on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com, and podcast wherever in the known cosmos you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to the Beyond Politics podcast. Visit our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. You won't regret it. Our shows are archived. We're so fascinating to each other. We want you to share in the joy. And we are really pleased today to have with us Dan Adcock. Dan is a veteran seniors advocate and policy expert. He's been the director of government relations and policy for the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare since 2011. When I was in Congress, the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare was a good friend to me, and I hope I was a good friend to them because it is a really important, important organization working to make sure that Social Security and Medicare uh, remain viable, vibrant for all of those who need it. And Dan has been on the front lines in every battle in Congress involving these programs. He's worked with members of Congress and their staffs on, on all this critical, important legislation that affects seniors so. Thanks, Paul, and thanks for having me on your show. And I think you were a great supporter of national security and a champion for Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid when you were in Congress. So, Well, let, let me tell you, I just celebrated a birthday. I'm now venerable. Uh, I reached the big 7-0. Um, I have to tell you, my own personal experience when I was signing up for uh, Medicare and Social Security when I, when I signed up was uh, I, I took a, a course from um, uh, from a, a government supported guidance person about about Social Security and Medicare. And uh, the only thing I could think to myself was, why don't they make every member of Congress take this course before or when they just get to Congress so they begin to understand how Social Security and Medicare actually work and, and, and what, the, what the program is all about. Because I think there are a lot of members of Congress who don't really have a clue about, about how things work or don't work as the case, case may be. But I want to turn to a subject of the moment. We have been, we're now one year into a global pandemic, which has had significant impact on senior citizens uh, around the globe and in this country with, with people of a certain age uh, seemingly at uh, greater risk uh, of contracting COVID and, 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 and deeper implications for, for our seniors. Um, with the new administration, we have a COVID relief a bill that has, that has come in. 
Um, and I'm curious to know what's in the COVID relief package of particular importance to seniors, of particular importance uh, in the battle to preserve Social Security and Medicare. Well, as you said, Paul, I mean, one of the things uh, that's happened during this pandemic is my, our constituency seniors uh, have been disproportionately hit by it, uh, that they account for uh, eight out of 10 deaths uh, uh, that uh, COVID has inflicted. Uh, and of course, uh, seniors who are living in nursing homes have really borne the brunt uh, in a very uh, contagious hotspot right up there with prisons and meatpacking plants. And so uh, this legislation, the American uh, Rescue Plan that's now been signed into law by President Biden does it contain quite a bit of uh, provisions that are gonna be helpful to seniors specifically in the pandemic and maybe even longer. Uh, specifically, uh, there's uh, the, the the benefit, the 14,000, 14, wish it was $14,000, the, uh, the $1,400 uh, payment uh, to, to many Americans under certain income thresholds uh, is something that seniors will also receive. In fact, one of the issues that we had in one of the previous uh, COVID relief bills is that uh, you had to file income taxes in order to be eligible. Uh, but we had fought back in the spring to ensure that, uh, that people on social, receiving Social Security or SSI or veterans benefits, uh, that they wouldn't have to do anything. They would automatically be paid those benefits even if they had not uh, filed income taxes because their income is so low. Uh, so, so you're saying that this time around, low-income seniors, even those whose incomes are so low that they don't have a net tax liability, are going to receive this new round of benefits. Exactly right. So you know, so that so we're pretty. That's a battle we fought last spring, and luckily, you know, this legislation also includes those instructions. And so, you know, seniors with very low tax liabilities, low-income seniors are, are going to get these payments too. So that's gonna that's gonna be very helpful to them. And you know, the other thing about these payments that I, that we can't say enough about is because they are going to people who are on the lower income, the lower end of the income scale, uh, they're gonna be paying, spending this right away. And so, so it's not, not only will it be good for them, but it'll be good for the local economies in which they live, just like social security benefits are. Um, it also includes uh, vaccinations, testing, and, uh, and safer nursing homes, specifically for nursing homes. Uh, it includes uh, teams that go in uh, if there's an outbreak in the nursing homes to give the uh, nursing home personnel a greater chance, chance at, at containing the outbreaks. And then a huge victory that we had a hand in uh, was uh, $12.6 billion for the Medicaid home and community-based care program. And that's really important. Uh, I mean, this is funding that's specifically dedicated to the pandemic. But as I said previously, you know, nursing homes have been a hotspot for COVID infection. But if you're severely disabled and, and you need long-term care and, and if you receive it at home, you're not taking that risk. But this money is especially important because of the fact uh, that uh, home and community-based care in the Medicaid, state Medicaid programs are optional. So if there's less tax revenue coming into state coffers, one of the first things to go is home and community-based care. But with this infusion of cash from the federal government, it will ensure that home and community-based care provided by Medicaid will continue. And it provides a foot in the door for the future uh, so that, uh, that that we can increase uh, uh, funding for home and community-based care uh, for the long haul, which most people uh, prefer anyway, because uh, your quality of life is better in your home rather than that facility. 
There's also 1.4. And, and just before you before you move sure. off of that, so just so people understand who we're talking about helping with this $12.6 billion uh, infusion in funds, when you talk about uh, Americans who are receiving home-based care, nursing care, who are part of the Medicaid population, what we're talking about is people with disabilities who are Medicaid eligible, which means they're both disabled and low income who are who are receiving vital care in their homes. So this is a this is a very vulnerable population that, as you're saying, is particularly at risk because this is the type of thing that states will tend to cut off first when they're low on funds. Right, because because of, because the federal law uh, that requires states to have Medicaid programs makes home and community-based care optional, unlike uh, nursing home care. And, that, and that's a long-term problem with Medicaid is there's always been this institutional bias towards institutional care, uh, which most people really don't like. I mean, obviously it's a necessary evil for many people, but home and community-based care is almost better in every respect, certainly from a COVID safety respect, but also that people's quality of life is better if they have family giver, family caregiver that can help them, then they're also with family all the time as well in familiar surroundings. And so, uh, and frequently it's less expensive um, for for both taxpayers and for the person who needs a long-term care than institutional care. Dan, let me just follow up on, on, on this same subject because I think it's so important and often, and something not often talked about um, when we talk about uh, our aging population, uh, baby boomers coming up uh, demographically in, in huge numbers of which I, I am one. Um, we also have seen uh, lately um, reports, uh, not just of COVID hotspots and mismanagement uh, and disasters from COVID, in uh, nursing homes and in institutions, but uh, uh, a, a kind of deeper systemic problem with many nursing homes in terms of uh, the way patients are, are treated. And yeah, there, there are challenges uh, in our, in, uh, with nursing home care. There are real, real challenges, especially with a Medicaid population of, of low-income people that with nursing homes primarily run as for-profit uh, enterprises, uh, it makes for a, 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 a toxic brew of, uh, of challenges, let's just say. So that the idea of, of moving care, if, and I'll just use that term of moving care to home-based care, for a Medicaid population, whether disabled or not uh, disabled for all the reasons that you spoke of is really important. Um, and it, it requires other legislative fixes and education of members of Congress about uh, changes to uh, the Medicaid system. Uh, are you finding any receptivity among uh, members of Congress or in this new administration about raising the issue of how to fix the, these issues to provide for um, caregiver reimbursement, to make it possible uh, for, uh, for children of aging seniors to care uh, for them in their home without having to completely sacrifice their own lives 
and um, uh, lifestyles. Is, is this an issue which you think can gain some traction uh, and improve, improve care for seniors? Yeah, I do. I mean, I know that the Biden administration supports um, a, a tax credit for to, to support caregivers, and that's something we support as well. And then we support a change in, in the Social Security benefits so that uh, when we're looking at how to improve Social Security benefits, one of them is a caregiver's credit. Because what happens is that frequently a caregiver who is either caring for an elderly parent or for a child has to leave the workforce, but for every year that they leave the workforce, they're missing a year on their Social Security uh, wage history, which lower benefit for them. So this caregiver credit creates what amounts to a proxy uh, that makes up for that lost time and provides them a larger benefit than they otherwise would. So I, I think we're seeing a lot of support for, for these kind of measures, as well as actual direct funding from Medicaid. Uh, certainly, Frank Pallone is chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, along with uh, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell from uh, Michigan. Uh, we're instrumental in the House uh, in this home and community-based uh, Medicaid provision that was in the American Rescue Plan as well as uh, Senator Wyden, chairman of the Finance Committee in the Senate. Uh, so I, there's certainly a lot of support uh, for trying to beef up uh, uh, home and community-based care in the Congress and in the White House. So at the risk of creating a little bit of conflict and uh, a little bit of drama, of course, drama is good when you're in radio, <laughs> I want to refer you to a conversation that I had with the executive director of the Concord Coalition, Bob Bixby. And we're airing that segment as, as a podcast on the Great Ideas podcast, which, by the way, I hope everyone will subscribe to, where we, we focus on how programs work, how ideas work in government, and then ideas for innovation and reform. And what Bob said was, look, we've got a bit of a situation when it comes to Social Security, that the major trust funds around Social Security are currently projected to be depleted by 2035. And so what he suggested as a great idea, as an innovation for helping to fix this problem is something in Congress called the Trust Act that would set up a process for starting to identify ways to stop the depletion from happening, from, from maybe applying some cuts, maybe raising some additional revenue. I understand that you're... Uh, far and away a bigger expert on this, and you have a different perspective on the Trust Act. So what is your perspective? What do you think about that? Um, and, and where do you maybe differ from Bob Bixby and the Concord Coalition? Well, probably differ about 100%. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the Trust Act is reinventing the wheel. We already have uh, committees in, in the House and the Senate that respond to jurisdiction over Social Security and Medicare. Uh, that are perfectly capable, and I would argue probably more capable than some rescue committees, which the Trust Act envisions, because of the fact that uh, these members of Congress and their staff are experts at these issues. They understand them backwards and, and forwards and what needs to happen. And I think what the, what these the rescue committees that the Trust Act uh, really are more about is providing uh, political cover for people who want to cut Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, because when you look at how this legislation is structured, it doesn't it, it, it all of its all of its ex exclusive focus is on solvency. It's not on uh, what's really missing is benefit adequacy. The Social Security and Medicare do they have the benefits the, the, that will uh, help them adapt to uh, the economic conditions as they are today and as they change? Just for an example, forty percent of, of uh, Social Security beneficiaries 
spend on the program for 90% or more of their income in retirement. And that's because of flat wages for the last 30 years, middle-class wages, um, and also because employers uh, have uh, uh, cut back severely on retirement benefits. Uh, you know, in the private sector, defined benefit pensions have become pretty much non-existent. You have a little more in the, in the public sector, but even there, there's been a lot of erosion. So people get to retirement and they don't have the disposable income to save for retirement. Uh, and they may not have any kind of retirement, even a 401k set up there at their employer. So the question is, you know, are, are, are Social Security benefits going to be sufficient enough to continue to keep seniors out of poverty, which they have, you know, since the program was created? That doesn't even begin to be part of the conversation that's started by these rescue committees. And we're concerned that the way they're structured, it stacks the deck in forward in, in favor of benefit cuts. Uh, that would receive, if, if approved by these rescue committees, would receive expedited consideration in, in the House and in, in the Senate. Uh, so that's what's, that's what our big concern is about. And this is something that uh, Mitt Romney, who's the sponsor of the Trust Act in the Senate, uh, continues to look for every opportunity to add to legislation as it moves through the Congress. And just to follow up on the thought, is it your sense given that there are some, some fiscal challenges facing Social Security, you know, not least of which is there's a shift in our population. We have fewer workers paying in and financing the system uh, compared to the, the number of retirees we have. So there, there are financial challenges that are, that are very real. Is it your sense that there are going to have to be, in some sense, at some point, some changes, whether it's retirement age or benefits or the cap at which uh, people's uh, uh, taxes um, uh, where they have to pay in um, uh, phase out. Are those kinds of changes inevitable in some sense, or are there other solutions available? I think the change to Social Security and Medicare are inevitable, but we want to make sure it's the change that will ensure that these programs continue to do what they are created to do. Uh, so when we talk about change, uh, you know, we're in favor, the National Committee, we're in favor of increasing revenue to the, to the program. To raising the cap on payroll taxes is something that President Biden would support raising, uh, raising the cap up to uh, $400,000 uh, of, of income above $400,000. Um, so, uh, and there's other revenue proposals that would do the same. And there's legislation that Congressman John Larson from Connecticut has introduced, the Social Security 2100 Act, uh, that would extend the solvency of the trust fund through those type of revenue measures, but also have money left over not only to extend solvency for more than 75 years, but to add some important benefit increases. That's the vision we embrace for the future of Social Security so that we don't have benefit cuts starting in, 19, in, in 2035. So, what do you oh, go I, ahead, Paul. Yeah. I'm just going to ask, what do you think the chances are of seeing uh, the, the Congress of the United States, a notoriously dysfunctional and slow to move or act body, uh, actually taking up something uh, effective and constructive to deal with the challenges that Social Security faces from the bulge of baby boomers? the baby boomer bulge. And I'm not talking about the COVID-19 uh, I've put on in the past year. I'm talking about <laughs> the demographic bulge uh, that is wreaking such havoc right now with the system. 
Right. Well, and that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? It's, uh, uh, you know, basically whenever I, you know, we, we watch uh, hearings that are held by the House Social Security Subcommittee, John Larson, by the way, is chairman of that subcommittee. Uh, you, it's the same, basically the same story from either side of the aisle. Uh, usually Democrats on the panel support Congressman Larson's bill and vision of, uh, of increasing revenue of the program and improving benefits. And on the Republican side, uh, they don't want to increase revenue, but you know, if you're not going to increase revenue to the program, the only thing left over is benefit cuts. And so that's why they're, you know, in terms of, of trying to solve, come up with a solution, this is the problem is, is that Republicans, especially you know, because they've done things like signing the Grover Norquist pledge not to raise taxes, uh, they're not supportive of any kind of benefit increase, even though uh, that new uh, polling on this uh, increasing revenue to the program is uh, is popular regardless of party affiliation uh, or age. We have been talking here on Beyond Politics with Dan Adcock, the Director of Government Relations and Policy for one of my favorite organizations, the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. Dan has been on the front lines of every battle in Congress to make sure seniors have what they need to lead dignity, lives of dignity and health. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. It's for my co-host, Matt Robeson, it's Paul Hodes. Pick us up on your podcasts, Beyond Politics. Visit our website, beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Subscribe to our podcasts and binge listen to all our past shows. We'll see you next week. <laughs>